0: Support for LAist comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years of Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, with over 200 films May 1st through 10th. Info at festival.vcmedia.org.
1: I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at laist.com events.
2: You're listening to Imperfect Paradise. I'm your host, Antonia Cerejido. On the last three episodes of Imperfect Paradise, The Castle, we took you inside the story of a magic lover who struggled to make a place for themselves inside one of the most exclusive members-only clubs in Hollywood, The Magic Castle. Carly Usden studied magic for over a year in order to pass their audition to become a member at The Castle. But once inside, they were confronted with the realities of existing in that space as someone who was trans and non-binary.
1: It felt like you were back in time in a place where like, almost everyone there is an older, white, cis, heterosexual man. It's their world that you're stepping into.
2: Parley's disappointment with the castle came to a head in the summer of 2020, following the murder of George Floyd, when the castle struggled with how to address issues of equity and inclusion. It
1: definitely felt like a turning point. And I'm like, is the castle going to move forward into the future? Are we going to be on the right side of history? As so many industries, as so many
3: groups have faced those moments of like reckoning.
2: After we produced this story, I still had questions about what happened to that influx of interest in DEI three years later and why change is so difficult.
3: I don't think it's coming from a place of malice or or apathy. I think it comes from living in a society where you don't have to see the hurt if you don't want to.
2: That's coming up. But first, in order to better understand magic inclusion, I wanted to dive into how the gender dynamics that play out in Western magic, both on stage and off, came to be. we do not have that much information about the demographics of magic performers. So we're gonna focus on a group that we have the most information about, women in magic. I've seen some estimates that put female magicians in the U.S. at seven to 13%. There are a lot of professions where the gender ratio is skewed, but in magic, it's particularly intense. And so I was curious to learn about why that is and how it's informed by the history of magic in Europe and in the U.S., which is why I was excited to talk to Margaret Steele. She wrote a book about Adelaide Herman, a performer from the turn of the century who was once considered the queen of magic. And she's a magic historian, author, and retired magician. Magic isn't
1: that old, first of all. It's a couple of hundred years old, the way we perform magic, standing up and presenting tricks to people. And it evolved in a time where all power was possessed and displayed by men, by white men. And we're talking about performance magic in the Western world, right? Right. Some people talk about how magic is just a microcosm for the larger world, but I think it's more extreme than that because magic is a power display. So the people that we have always been comfortable with having and displaying power are white men. Women have always been involved in performance magic, which began in... The early 19th century, you know, before that, it was dangerous to represent the supernatural because you could be accused of witchcraft. So there finally became a point where it became safe to do magic tricks. (laughs) And in the early to mid-19th century, magicians who were performing as wizards and street fairs and festivals started moving into more sophisticated drawing room entertainment. And they were assisted by women who performed um, mind reading, trick we called second sight. It's always the woman who's the mind reader. She sits on stage, sometimes blindfolded, and her partner walks around and borrows things from people. And she is able to discern what they are in great detail. And they were doing that in the early to mid-19th century and on. And that was what Adelaide Herman was doing with her husband before she became an illusionist. So who is Adelaide, for those of us who don't know? Adelaide Herman was the first successful female magician. She and her husband, Alexander Herman, who was the greatest magician who ever lived, I believe. Uh, We all know Houdini now. Houdini asked Alexander Herman for a job. He was his idol as well. But Adelaide Herman was a dancer and a trick bicyclist who met this magician and married him and became his assistant. And at the time, assistants were played by young boys. So she dressed as a young boy to assist him and then decided, no, I'm a dancer. I wanna be performing as myself on stage. So he and her husband together created the very first Grand Illusion show. And she was the first woman to perform Grand Illusions as an athletic glamorous female assistant. This was in the Victorian age. This was in the 1870s, a time when women were very disempowered. So a woman doing these very gymnastic type feats on stage was very new and actually very daring. So they invented the Grand illusion show and then in the 1870s, lots of other magicians jumped on the bandwagon and started doing illusions with women. In 1896, Alexander Herman suddenly died of a heart attack on their private rail car. And in order to keep the show going, Adelaide Herman stepped into the lead role and performed for another 30 years. And at that point, she was the only professional female magician. A few women followed suit, but it was very difficult at the time to get an entree into the business if you weren't related to a magician, if you weren't a magician's wife or daughter. And even then, many magicians refused to teach women. So the gatekeepers have always been the obstacle to women learning magic.
2: Mm. Wow, and this was during the golden age of magic. And what marks that era?
1: That era is loosely bound by emerging technologies on both ends. In the mid-1800s, railroads in America and in Europe became ubiquitous. Every little town had a train station, and the population was expanding, and every little town was building opera houses stone lithography was new too so mass production of these beautiful color posters and then instantaneous communication through telegraph communications and morse code you could send a message instantly across the country or to europe through the first transatlantic cable so all of that enabled this mad rush of touring companies including magic companies and that lasted from roughly the 1870s up till end of the 1920s, where newer technology put that era out of business. And that was motion pictures and radio, where people didn't have to leave home anymore to be entertained. And then the nail in the coffin was the Great Depression, which happened in 1929.
2: Can you talk a little bit more about how the misogyny played out through the gender dynamics on stage during the golden age of magic. The gender dynamics
1: were actually very useful for making the magic deceptive because in a magic performance, you have the magician who's the power player and the one in the spotlight. And then you have the assistant and the weaker and less intelligent that person seems to be, the more powerful the magician seems to be. So they're actually getting away with doing stuff because they're a skilled assistant with all sorts of assistant tasks that they're never suspected of, and that's deliberate. So those dynamics work in service of the magic. Interesting.
2: One of the Magic Castle members and magic historians that we talked to for the series, Angela Sanchez, told us that a big turning point for women in magic came in 1921 when P.T. Selbit unveiled the sawing a woman in half.
1: That was during the time of women's suffrage marches and rallies to get women the vote in the U.S. Then, when P.T. Selbit brought this illusion to the U.S., he played on that. I believe that the sawing introduced a level of intentional misogyny that wasn't there before. You know, when it got a little more extreme, like the magician who flushed his assistant head first down a toilet, nobody objected, but most of the time, it's been unconscious. That's what makes it so difficult to overcome, because you have to bring it into consciousness first.
2: Right. I mean, for me, I didn't think twice about the woman being sawn in half, and then you think about it for one second, and you're like, yeah, that's pretty messed up. Right.
1: I have a friend. She was a wonderful magician. Her name was Rebecca Yen. And she saw a man in half. And magicians would come up to her, outraged afterwards, and say to her, why do you hate men?
2: It seems like when it comes to barriers for women today in magic, a lot of that history has left its mark on the current demographics. I'm curious, from your time when you were doing magic, any barriers that you saw firsthand?
1: Well, I won't name the name, but my very first club date that I ever did was a club on Long Island many years ago. I was setting up and I noticed that this young male magician was moving all my equipment, which is something you don't do. You don't touch somebody else's stuff. And I said, am I in your way? And he looked at me and he said, do you mean physically or emotionally? (laughs) Oh, I was oh my God! Shocked, and then I heard him talking to the stage manager, saying, "Make sure the girl gets all her shit off stage before I go on." And I thought, "Wow!" And then I saw his act, and his act was just woman-hating. It was so misogynistic. I can't take any of my female friends to a magic convention because they just stand up and scream with what they saw. It's so normalized that. Most magicians, it doesn't even register with them. I did another club date once with a very well-known magician who was beloved. And I went on and I came off stage. And before he went on, he looked at me. He sat on the floor and he said, girl
2: magicians.
1: And then he went off. Oh
2: my God, it's like cartoonish. Yet there's a new
1: generation that's better, even in the last 10 years. And I believe that's because... There are more young women that have gone to magic camp and actually been integrated with the magic scene. I believe that magic is a healing art, that when we inspire wonder, we're taking people away from their daily problems and their toils and the drudgery of life and showing them something extraordinary creating a magical space where healing happens and anything is
2: possible. Well, Margaret Steele, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. Margaret Steele, she's a magic historian, author, and a retired magician. After the break, we're gonna talk with a DEI expert about the current state of diversity, equity, and inclusion, the impact of 2020, the changes that they've seen.
3: They don't really know what's going on. George Floyd was a wake-up call for people, which I'm like, how? I've known this since, I was like, I don't know, six, (laughs) seven. I was 10 years old when the L.A. riots happened. You know, we've been asking questions about race and racism since I was a child.
2: So how is it that you don't know? And it's like, oh, because you don't ever have to see it. That's
0: coming up on Imperfect Paradise. vc film fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives may 1st through 10th in little tokyo and in long beach info at festival.vcmedia.org hi i'm tracy thomas host of one for the books and we are back for another round
2: You're listening to Imperfect Paradise from Elea Studios. I'm your host, Antonia Cerejito. Before the break, we looked at the history of exclusion in magic. Now, I want to turn towards the topic of DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. In 2020, the Magic Castle, like so many institutions across the country, made public promises to do better on issues of inclusion. As a part of that, they created a Diversity and Inclusion Committee, In the last episode of The Castle, we heard a couple of members who were part of the committee express their frustrations with how little they were able to get done. And they expressed how the commitment to DEI seemed to fizzle away after 2020 passed. And it feels to me indicative of a larger trend. This year, we've seen high-profile DEI execs in the entertainment industry leave their jobs at Netflix, Disney, Warner Brothers. And one study from Revelio Labs found that DEI-focused jobs were more impacted by layoffs this year than any other type of role. So to help me process all of this, I talked with Amber Johnson, Assistant Vice Chancellor and Chief of Staff at the Division for Equity and Inclusion at UC Berkeley. By the way, Amber is not privy to any inside information about the Magic Castle or its committees. They're just commenting on our story as it's been reported, as well as their own experiences. For 15 years, they've been a consultant to different companies on DEI issues. And they actually call it DEIBJA, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, Belonging, Justice, and Accessibility. So
3: welcome, Amber. Thanks so much for having me, Antonia. It's great to meet you.
2: So in the series, we learn that the castle's Diversity and Inclusion Committee was a voluntary committee that served as an advisory role to the board. And I'm wondering for you as a professional, what you think of that setup?
3: Advisory board just means you can make recommendations, but you cannot hold us accountable. Right? Where is the accountability? So if you trust me to make recommendations, you should also trust me to implement them. Give me the resources to do so and get out of my way. So a lot of times people on these advisory committees find themselves burnt out because you put in these hours and hours of labor to figure this out, to understand the whole truth, to make recommendations. And then those recommendations sit on somebody's desk for two years right, while you are still continuing to suffer personally and professionally.
2: It's interesting because this is a story that's taking place in a club that, for Carly, it was like a hobby. Like, what to you is the difference between this kind of work in a space that isn't for making money or as a job versus something that you're doing for your own personal fulfillment?
3: I don't think that there's a difference, right? I try to sort of surround myself with people, organizations, you know, vibes that align with who I am, whether it's for personal gain or professional gain or as a volunteer where there is no gain. And if those spaces aren't safe, don't feel comfortable, don't feel rewarding and in alignment with your spirit, there's going to be a problem. There's this idea that if it's a hobby, you can just walk away. Well, for some people, their hobbies are how they survive. They can't just walk away. And then there's this notion that, well, it's work. We can't just walk away. And so I think both of those are wrong, right? We can walk away from work and some of us cannot walk away from some of these quote-unquote hobbies that really are our support system.
2: What brought you to DEI work specifically? Being
3: a Black, queer, non-binary person in an organization (laughs) and trying to set right the, the many, many wrongs, the things that I was experiencing. And what I learned early on was doing this work for the organization that I work for was a double-edged sword. Because if my recommendations and my action steps were not adopted, then I would suffer personally and professionally. And so it, it became kind of a moral imperative. I felt compelled to try to change it. And I noticed that prior to taking on an administrative role where that was my job, I was doing it. As a, an addendum, right, which means I was working 60 to 80 hours a week to fix something with no, you know, substantive resources, with no grounded effort or initiative, with no buy in, really. I'm just sort of doing this and hoping someone will pick it up. And so for me, shifting into a role where this is my responsibility actually alleviated some of that labor. Um, But the, the former thought still stands that if the institution I work for does not do the things that we are suggesting they do, then I suffer personally and professionally.
2: So you've worked as a DEI consultant in a lot of different sectors, medicine, legal, higher ed, nonprofit world. When a company calls you and says, We've got a problem. Like, what's your approach?
3: So, the first steps are rooted in sort of that environmental scan of what's the actual issue? How did we arrive? Right? Because none of these issues exist in a vacuum. And are you ready to do the necessary work? Once I figure out how we got here and just how deep the problem is, do you have the bandwidth to climb into those trenches and get dirty? Do you have a desire for radical transformation? Or do you want to say, hey, we had an expert come in and now we're all good. And most institutions, they want the latter. Folks who are hired to do this work often want the former. They want to transform. But a lot of the folks who have the power to create that transformation tend to want to check the box. And I don't think it's coming from a place of malice or or apathy. I think it comes from living in a society where you don't have to see the hurt if you don't want to. And if you have enough resources, you might be protected from its existence and not even know that you are complicit in it. right? And so a lot of folks who have positions of power in these institutions, they don't really know what's going on. George Floyd was a wake-up call for people, which I'm like, how? I've known this since I was like, I don't know, six, seven. I was 10 years old when the LA riots happened. You know, we've been asking questions about race and racism since I was a child. So how is it that you don't know? And it's like, oh, because you don't ever have to
0: see it.
2: I'm talking with Amber Johnson, Assistant Vice Chancellor and Chief of Staff for the Division for Equity and Inclusion at UC Berkeley. Coming up, we'll get into the impact of George Floyd's murder on the field of DEI. That's after the break on Imperfect Paradise. I'm Antonia Cerejido.
0: Support comes from Visual Communications presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years showcasing Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, featuring over 200 works ranging from narrative film, documentary films, photo exhibits, and new media. VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org.
2: This is Imperfect Paradise. I'm Antonia Cerejito. I'm talking with Amber Johnson, Assistant Vice Chancellor and Chief of Staff of the Division for Equity and Inclusion at UC Berkeley. I'm very interested in 2020 as like a moment that sparked change and it feels like a lot of the promises sort of fizzled out after that. Was that the impression that you had as well? And what do you think accounts for that?
3: Absolutely, a thousand percent. Um, Once I saw how much momentum was picking up after George Floyd's murder. I I literally pulled my colleagues to the side and I said, listen, there is an opportunity here. If you write a statement about your DEIBJA goals and you don't have personnel and due dates attached to them, we can't hold you accountable, right? What are you going to do? Who's going to do it? When are you going to do it by? If that's not in there, your statement doesn't matter. But I said, outside of those statements, money will be thrown around. People will start to pay attention and there will be a backlash because folks are terrified that their power will be taken away. So we must get in while the getting is good because we have good ideas. We know that how we do this works. So we have to take advantage of this moment because it will end. What I didn't know was how fast that would happen. Wow! So it took about a year for folks to say, let me introduce a bunch of laws to shut this mess down right now. And that's where we are now, right? So the Supreme Court decision around affirmative action in colleges, that's a direct reflection of fear. The fear that the folks who are most marginalized might actually get what they want. All of the anti-trans laws and shutting down of trans youth clinics and trans health care. So in, in one sense, it's kind of exciting because it means that people are scared because it's working. But in another sense, it's terrifying because it means that people are revving up their racism, their ableism, their sexism, their homophobia.
2: So you think we're in the moment of backlash?
3: Absolutely, absolutely.
2: The Magic Castle story ends with Carly deciding that they don't want to be associated with the castle anymore. And it becomes like a question of like, if we're in this moment of backlash, the people who really care about diversity, equity and inclusion, making things accessible, what is the positionality that folks have to be in right now to face this current climate?
3: Wow. I think we have to go into these spaces fully aware of what is possible, what is within reach, and what is required to recover when we leave. The work is hard because people get in the way and people don't want to change. And I also think that people not wanting to change is a function of feeling. If I make these changes, will I still be good at what I'm doing? Or will I have to stretch myself? And if these changes take hold, will I still be relevant in my role? And so it's not just being threatened by the idea of diversity, it's feeling like I know how to work in this system and if we change the system, I don't know what's gonna happen to me. And so for some people, they're just scared and I understand that. So if you're gonna come into this work, it's, it's having a full recognition and a respect for how hard it is because of the gatekeeping, because of the barriers, because of the lack of desire for transformational shifts. And then have a lot of built-in time to rest and recover. Because every day, every day you have to decompress, right? And find recovery because the work is, is hard. It's really hard.
2: What do you do to recover? Um, I
3: paint. I play with my three-year-old. I am intentional about not internalizing failure. If something I recommend or initiative I want to be on doesn't work, it's not because I am incompetent, right? It's because these systems are built to resist change. And I clean up. I know that's probably weird for a lot of listeners, um, but for some of us, cleaning is like it's cathartic.
2: man, I wish that was how I recovered. <laughs> that would be really convenient
3: yeah it's it's a win-win. I mean outside of the emotional uh catastrophe, it's a win-win <laughs>
2: <laughs> Are you into magic?
3: so um i've all I've been one of those people where anytime I see it, I'm very gullible like unbelievably gullible. So I believe everything. So the illusion is awesome. But then to see how people are able to trick us into those illusions, like the process behind it. I am such a nerd. I love it. Like It's so cool. I, I can't do it though. It's, it's not my expertise. Because if I could, I would magically make D-E-I-B-J-A a thing. <laughs> That's the magic. <laughs>
2: Amber Johnson is the Assistant Vice-Chancellor and Chief of Staff of the Division for Equity and Inclusion at UC Berkeley. Next time on Imperfect Paradise, we're going to feature a really wonderful series from our friends at How to LA. As Angelinos know, and also we've covered on this very show, homelessness is a major issue here in Southern California. And the How to LA team has been following around a group of select folks who are actually trying to do something about it. These volunteer groups in the city are stepping in to help where the government has not, providing services that range from the difficult to the simple. Maybe you've heard of the term mutual aid. In the next coming weeks on Imperfect Paradise, you'll learn what that even means and how it's being used to address one of the most pressing issues in our city.
0: In recent years, especially in LA, a lot of mutual aid groups have turned their attention toward on-house communities, offering everything from bottled water to clean needles to backpacks.
3: With them bringing out water,
0: it assists us in a way that you just can't explain. You need water for everything.
3: I've been able to call on them when I haven't been able to call on anyone else.
2: Things like that are priceless. That's coming up on the next episode of Imperfect Paradise The Castle. Listen to new episodes of the podcast every Wednesday Or tune in on Sunday nights at 7 p.m. on LAist 89.3 or LAist.com. Imperfect Paradise, the Castle is reported, written, produced, and sound designed by LAist senior producer Natalie Chudnovsky. I'm the show's host, Antonia Serejido. Catherine Mailhouse is the executive producer of the show and our director of content development. Shayna Naomi Krokmal is our vice president of podcasts. Additional production by Marina Pena. Jens Campbell is our production coordinator. Editing by Audrey Quinn. Fact-checking by Caitlin Antonios. Our theme was composed by E. Scott Kelly, who is also our engineer. Imperfect Paradise is a production of LA Studios. This podcast is powered by listeners like you. Support this show by donating now at las.com slash join. This podcast is supported by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live.
3: This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.